Well, I am glad that we are finally drying out from all the storms that we've had over these past <laughs> few weeks. And, uh, you know, we really needed the rain. And so I'm glad that we got it. I'm glad that the drought has lessened. But that much precipitation all at once causes some problems. And we had flooding in different parts of the state and overflowing rivers and streams and mudslides and even sinkholes. Uh, perhaps you saw that we had a sinkhole of our very own here in Twainheart at Epperson Park. There it is. Not too dramatic, but technically a sinkhole. Uh, perhaps you saw the much larger one that took out part of the 118 uh, freeway down in Los Angeles. Do you see there's a car there at the bottom of it? Uh, one of the things that causes a sinkhole to happen, one of the major causes of a sinkhole, is that what's underneath the surface gets washed away. What's under that top layer of soil or pavement gets washed away, and then under the weight of that top layer, or in the case of a road, the weight of a car driving over, that spot collapses and causes the sinkhole. The pavement, or whatever's on the surface, can look normal, but there's actually a vulnerability there that gets exposed when there's that weight. Sadly, this image of a sinkhole illustrates what can all too easily happen in people's lives. That outwardly, they can look normal and healthy, but under the surface, there's a vulnerability. They appear solid, but there's actually a hollowness inside. And under the pressures of life, or in an especially difficult season, that vulnerability is exposed and things come crashing down. Someone is a hard worker and very productive, but then they hit a season of burnout and they can't function normally. Someone is happy and upbeat, but then uh, they suffer severe depression and can't get out of bed. Someone appears to have a healthy and strong marriage, but then an affair comes to light. Someone appears to be strong and well, but then an addiction takes over their life. Someone appears to be spiritually vibrant and healthy, and then they lose their faith. Depending on the person and the situation, sometimes they know that that vulnerability is there, and there's a degree of keeping up appearances or fake it till you make it going on. But sometimes that person is just as surprised as everybody else when things come crashing down. Regardless of the details, whenever a sinkhole like this happens in someone's life, it's catastrophic for them and for the people close to them. These sinkholes are all too common. <clears throat> They're really dangerous, but they are not inevitable. It's possible to avoid sinkholes like this in our life. It's possible to, to avoid these emotional and spiritual sinkholes. It's possible to go through even the hardest seasons, the most challenging times, the most difficult periods of our life, and not have everything come crashing down. It's possible to be centered and strong, to be genuinely healthy from the inside out, to be able to take care of ourselves and the people who depend on us, to keep on contributing and, and, and doing what we're supposed to be doing. It's possible to avoid sinkholes. And if we're going to do that, a big part of avoiding them is to address issues in our soul. Now, I'm not sure the last time you thought about the condition of your soul, but this is actually a pretty important thing to ponder because your soul is a really important part of you. Your soul is the deepest part of you. It's the part of you that influences what you think and how you feel. It's the part of you that underlies your ambitions and your motivations. Your soul is the because part of you. The answer to questions like, why am I the way I am? 
Why do I do what I do? Why do I react the way I react? Why are my default settings what they are? The answer to those questions lies in our souls. And if, we're, if we have a healthy soul, we'll avoid those sinkholes that otherwise could destroy us. Today and the next couple Sundays, I want to talk about how we can have a healthy soul. Three sermons is not enough time for me to give a comprehensive answer to this, to this question, but I do want to make a start by talking about three necessary elements if we're going to have a healthy soul. And today, I want to start by talking about our identity. A healthy soul requires a secure identity. Now, all of us have some sense of who we are. All of us have an answer to the question, what gives me value and worth? Who am I? Uh, Do I matter? Why do I matter? What makes me okay? What does it take for me to be okay about myself? We all have an answer to that question. Even if you haven't ever articulated it, articulated it, you have a functional identity that you're living from because we always act like who we think we are. And so we're acting in response to some sense of self. And that sense of self, our identity, can be influenced by a lot of different factors. It can be influenced by our family of origin and experiences we had in our childhood. You receive messages when you were a kid about who you are and what makes you significant and what gives you value. Uh, our, our identity has been influenced by messages we receive by significant people in our lives, even as adults. It's been influenced by messages we hear from our culture about who we are and what's important about us. Our identity is influenced by experiences that we've had in life, positive and negative. It's influenced by our sense of success or failure. All of that and more goes into this understanding of who I am and what makes me important or valuable. What many people find when they start to think about not just who am I, but why do I think that's who I am, when they start to look at the foundation that their identity is built on, they discover that it's not a very secure or stable foundation. Because sometimes it's based on things that aren't actually true. What you were told as a kid about who you are may or may not have been true. You might have received some messages that actually were not true, but you're still living as though they were. Because they've influenced you. The messages you've received from our culture about who you are, what gives you value, what you've heard from other people in your life, those came with a lot of agenda that was not necessarily to speak truth to you. You, It might not have been true, but you're still living as though it was because you believed it when it was said to you. And it's gotten rooted deep in your soul. Sometimes people look at the foundation of their identity and they realize, oh, my identity is based on a role I have. It's a role in an organization, or it's a role in my family. But what happens if that role changes or goes away? Then who are you? If if your identity is based in an ability that you have, you're, you're smart, you're athletic, you're a hard worker, you're creative, what if that ability goes away? Then who are you? Many people discover that the foundation of their identity is insecure and unstable, But friends, the good news that I want to share with you today is that there is a secure and stable foundation for our identity, a secure identity that we can build our lives on that's available to anyone who has entrusted their lives to Jesus. Anyone who's put their faith in Jesus has a secure identity to build our lives on. It's our identity in Christ. So today I want to remind you of what that identity is. 
I want to talk about how we can know whether we're actually living from that identity. I want to give you some diagnostic tools to think about. Then I want to briefly talk about how we can grow more secure in our identity in Christ. But to start with, let's think about who we are. What is our identity in Christ? And our starting point for thinking about that is unsurprisingly to look at Jesus himself. It is uh, significant and it's no coincidence that Jesus' own ministry started with an affirmation of his identity by his heavenly father. Look at Matthew 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for uh, for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. You know, other than the stories about Jesus' birth and a brief mention of Jesus when he was 12, we don't hear anything about Jesus until this point in his life. As far as we know, he has not healed anyone. He's not cast out any demons. He's not performed any miracles. He's not taught any crowds. The only thing he's done is come and be baptized by John the Baptist. So this affirmation that God the Father speaks to him is not because of ministry that he has done. This affirmation becomes the basis of the ministry that he's going to do. Because Jesus knew who he was, he could stay faithful to his purpose. He was not swayed by the temptations of the devil, the accolades of the crowds, or by the criticism and opposition that he would face. The disapproval of the religious leaders did not sway him, and he did not make decisions about what he was going to do based on whether he thought it would make him popular or not. Jesus' identity was settled at this moment. He was the child of his heavenly father. He was loved by him, and God was pleased with him. So Jesus did not have to try to get from others what he'd already been given by his father. Jesus did not live for approval, but from approval. He was secure in his identity. So when we think about being secure in our identity, Jesus is our model. And he's our model not just for what it looks like to live secure, but also even for what that identity is. Because what, the God, because what God the Father spoke to Jesus at his baptism is also true of every one of us who has put our faith in Jesus. We are God's children. He loves us and he's pleased with us. We're his children. John 1.12 says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Romans 8.15 and 16, The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit, We are God's children. We are God's children and God loves us. 1 John 3, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Then in 1 John 4, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son 
as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And we are loved not because of our behavior, we're loved in spite of our sin. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're God's children, he loves us, and he is pleased with us. Therefore, Romans 8.1 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is pleased with us. There's no condemnation for us. He has justified us and nothing separates us from his love. Because we are in Christ, when God looks at us, he sees us through the lens of Jesus. When he looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. He sees the holiness of Jesus. He sees the goodness of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, does this mean that we are perfect? No. Do we still sin? Yes. But our sin does not change the essence of who we are. We are beloved, pleasing children of God who sometimes sin. But we are no longer sinners, meaning sin no longer defines us. We are no longer God's enemies. We are no longer objects of his wrath. That is what we were, but that is no longer true of us because now we are in Christ. This is our identity. I am a beloved child of God who is pleasing to him. And because this is based on the finished work of Jesus through his life and death, it's a solid foundation for us. This is based on the unchanging character of God, and so it's a secure foundation for our identity and our lives. Now, I imagine that you've heard all this before. I would bet that you've read all of those verses that I just read for us. I would imagine that you've heard sermons about this. You probably know that this is true of you, but here's the problem. Even though we know this is true, we don't always feel and act as though this is true. With our lips and our minds, we can affirm, that's my identity, but our actions and our emotions show that we're actually agreeing with another kind of basis for our identity. Because we'll always act like who we think we are. And so our behavior and even our emotions can be a, an indicator of where our identity truly lies. One of the ways that this comes out most clearly is in our relationships with other people. In, in how we relate to others, we can really see, is my identity truly based in the work of Jesus and my identity in him? Or is it, am I... A, is it based in something else other than my identity in Christ? I, I want to unpack this a bit for us because I think this is a helpful diagnostic for us to use 
to do some of that work in our, our soul. There are three common identity lies that we're tempted to believe. And even for people who put their faith in Jesus, uh, we're tempted to believe these and live according to these rather than our identity in Christ. And the first of these is the lie of performance or success. This lie is that my value is based on my performance. I'm only okay if I'm successful. Now, sometimes this can stem from our childhood experiences. The classic example is a child who brings home a report card with all A's, and the parents say, well, what about this A-? A minus? Well, why didn't you get an A in that class? What's going on there? And so we internalize this message that our worth depends on our ability to do well in school, or it depends on us being good at sports, or it depends on how attractive we are, or whether we're married, or whether we're married by a certain age, or whether we have kids, or whether we're rich, or whether we've achieved some level of status. The answer to those questions, am I okay? Do I have worth? Do I have value? The answer is a conditional yes. It's yes only if I'm performing well enough. It's yes, only if I'm successful in however success has been defined for us or however we've defined it for ourselves. So that's the first lie. The second one is the lie of approval. My value is based on whether certain people love or like me. I'm only okay if I'm being affirmed by others. Now, sometimes people that struggle with this lie want everyone in the world to like them. And anything short of that leaves them feeling unworthy. Sometimes it's not that everyone has to like me, it's that, it's that key special people have to like me, and they have to let me know that they like me. And to not get that affirmation of them actually feels threatening to my sense of self. Um, the, the, the thinking, or at least the way people act, is like, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to get you to like me. I'm, I, because I only am okay if you're validating me. I only have value if you value me and if you let me know that you value me. That's a very, very common uh, lie. Another one is control. And my value is based on whether I'm in control. I'm only okay if I'm controlling my environment and my circumstances. I've got to be in control of everything around me. I've got to be in control of the people around me. I've got to be controlling the outcomes. I've got to do that. And often this is uh, rooted in fear that if I'm not in control, I'm going to get hurt. And people who struggle with this many times have had experiences in life that have reinforced this belief. So this is motivated by self-protection or self-preservation. And if we are living as though one of these is actually the source of our identity, it's going to show up in how we relate to other people. Um, by the way, let me pause and say that I've prepared a handout for you this morning because I'm giving you a lot of information. So after the service, there's a blue piece of paper at the welcome table or out in the foyer that you can grab that has all of this on there, including everything that's on this chart I'm going to build. So it's, if it's too small to read or you, you feel like you've got to take notes for it, uh, you, you've, you've got that. So. But I do think, uh, let's think about this. So if we're insecure in our identity and we're believing that performance lie, that's going to show up in our relationships. One symptom is that we're going to compete with other people. Every relationship is a competition. Whether the other people know they're in a competition or not, we are, because we've got to win to feel good about ourselves. We've got to show that we're outperforming them so that we can feel secure. You've been around those people, right, that are so full of themselves. They're always talking themselves up. They're talking about how great they are, how, how, how much money they have, 
They're talking about how successful they are. They talk about how perfect their relationship is and how perfect their partner is. They talk about what a stud they are with the ladies. I mean, whatever the standard is, they're trying to convince you, I'm really awesome. And the reason they're doing it is they have to convince themselves that they're awesome, that they're winning in order to to feel like they have worth. And they think they've got to convince you of that as well to get any respect from you. And so uh, competition is a symptom of this performance lie. Also comparing. Uh, This is a variation on on competing, but it's not always as outwardly obvious. But people that struggle with this performance lie, they sometimes will judge others and condemn others and shame others. The idea is that I've got to show that I'm better than you to feel good about myself. And I may not be able to succeed up to the level that I need to to feel secure, but if I can show them at least doing better than you, then I can feel all right. I may not be winning, but at least I'm not losing as bad as you. And so I can feel okay about myself. And we laugh, but come on, you've met people like that. Some of you might be people like that or have been people like that. Or at least you know what the temptation is like. So, so that comparison can creep in. Another symptom is being defensive in our relationships with other people. Because um, you know, p- people that struggle with this lie very, very often know that they're not succeeding at the level that they need to succeed to feel okay about themselves. Very, very often, it's an unrealistically high mark that they've set or that others have set for them that no one could achieve, but they know they're not achieving it. And so they're judging themselves. They feel like a failure. They know they're not living up to what they're supposed to. And that belief becomes a lens through which they interpret the world and other people. So people say things to them that, that are not meant critically or negatively, but they take it that way because their assumption is, everyone there is judging me. You're judging me because I'm judging myself. And so, again, these are the people that it's always like, what do you mean by that? Why would you say that? What do you mean? What? You know, and they just, there's that defensiveness and that touchiness can be a symptom that someone's uh, believing this performance line. What about approval? Some of the symptoms here. One of them is to avoid conflict. Avoid conflict, even if it means allowing an unhealthy or dysfunctional situation to persist, I'm not going to confront it. And if conflict happens, I'm going to placate or capitulate to make it go away as soon as possible. And the reason for this is that disagreement means that someone dislikes me. If they disagree with me, it means they dislike me. And if they dislike me, my identity is threatened because my identity depends on everyone liking me. Now, you might say, Tim, you can disagree with someone and not dislike them. That's true. But for people who have internalized this lie, it doesn't feel like that. They're going to think that I'm disliked if you're disagreeing with me. Uh, Another symptom is being hypersensitive. I need everyone to always be only affirming of me all the time. And so anything short of that leaves me wondering, well, what's wrong? Why didn't you say that? And so uh, people that seem very needy or, again, just that hypersensitivity. Anyone that you've ever wondered, I like you. How many times a day do I have to tell you that I like you for to believe that I like you? It's never enough for people that have really internalized this lie. Uh, People-pleasing. It may sound obvious if this is an approval lie, but this is to a very, even a just very unhealthy extent. That sometimes people even set themselves up to be mistreated by others, even to the point of codependency or abuse, 
because they're so desperate for that approval and that affirmation. It gives people a really big lever to use to manipulate, to manipulate you if you're living for their approval and if you're dependent on their affirmation. And so uh, people-pleasing is there. Also, these last two really go together. Resentment and guilt trips and projecting expectations. Uh, we project an expectation on other people that's often unspoken, often unrealistic, but the expectation is you're going to like me because of the things I do for you. And, and, uh, and so anything I do for you, I'm looking for the, I'm looking for the affirmation. I'm looking for the I like you. I'm looking for the thank you, yes, but the thank you and you're awesome. And kind of I did it because I'm, I'm expecting that back. Now, when that doesn't happen, then, then the person is left resentful. Sometimes they're left trying to lay on guilt trips so they can hear what they need to hear. You know, I give and I give and I give and this is the thanks I get. Whatever it is, they're laying it on. Uh, withdrawing, being resentful, guilt trips, blowing up, exploding, or trying even harder to please, all of that uh, can, can show up with people that are struggling with the approval line. Uh, what about control? Uh, one of the, one of the uh, tendencies here is to manipulate. To manipulate even uh, with emotions so that you can maintain control over other people. Uh, this also shows up in what you might call political maneuvering. Kind of that sense of the the person that's willing to pull every lever, cut any corner, do what they have to do so that they stay in control of what's going on. Uh, sometimes people in relationships will withhold information or they'll just partial out tidbits. The idea is that if I know something you don't know, then I can keep you dependent on me. That keeps me in a position of control and power. Uh, people who struggle with this, they'll, I don't know what to call it, other than they power up, especially in conflict or confrontation. They'll get louder. Their, their voice will, will get loud. Their body language will change. They'll get as big as they can. Or, and sometimes they'll, they'll uh, actually use physical force to try to get what they want. It's that control is all important. Uh, they also will uh, resort to gossip, slander, accusation, innuendos, trying to talk other people down to weaken their position and strengthen their own. They also uh, can tend to keep score. This isn't keeping score like performing to show that I'm winning and you're not. This is like keeping track of favors given and favors owed. This is, uh, this is like when they do something nice for you, it's very clear that now you owe them. You know, those people that it's like there's always strings attached. That's a symptom of uh, someone who's based their identity in being in control. Now, when, when we're living with one of these lies as the foundation of our identity... It is really, really hard to have healthy relationships with people. Uh, one of the things that's really hard is it's really hard to have a disagreement when, when any disagreement is interpreted as an attack on your identity. You know, I, I, uh, my value depends on me performing well enough and winning. So the possibility that I'm wrong threatens me. Uh, my value depends on me being liked. So you not approving of my opinion threatens me. My value depends on me being in control. So you not thinking the way I think you should think threatens my sense of self. And it's really hard to have healthy relationships when there's all these unspoken preconditions and assumptions and expectations in place. When people bring agenda to a relationship, 
it's very often a sign of insecurity. Agenda in a relationship is often a sign of insecurity. So we see that what we're talking about here is not only an indicator that something's wrong under the surface, these things are also problems in their own right that need to be addressed. So in our relationships, we can see the symptoms of insecurity in our identity, but fortunately, we can also see symptoms of security uh, when in how we relate to other people. There, aren't you glad there's another whole column I'm going to now unpack for you? That's not all bad news. So what about when we're secure? If we're secure in our identity in Christ, then instead of having to perform in, in order to feel like we're okay, we understand that God is pleased with us. That God already, uh, that, that God is pleased with us. He loves us fully, regardless of our success or failure. He loves us. And so, that means that we can extend grace to other people. It means that their imperfections are not a cause for us to rejoice. We're not pointing those out so that we can, so we can feel better about ourselves. It's okay for other people not to be okay around us when we're secure in our identity. We can extend grace. We honor and build others up instead of tearing them down. So that you know, we, we, we get rid of the winners and losers categories. So we can honor and build others up rather than showing that we're more successful than they are. We can cooperate instead of compete with other people. And we can work together, and honestly, it doesn't even matter who gets the credit because we don't have to get the, the, uh, that affirmation and that sense of winning in order to be okay with ourselves. And uh, we can receive critique reasonably. So it doesn't threaten me to receive critique or even to be told that I'm wrong. I can even admit that I'm wrong and still be okay because I don't have to always be winning. I don't have to be perfectly successful in order to be okay or to have value. Because that's been settled in my relationship through Jesus. With uh, approval, instead of needing the approval of others uh, to feel secure, our sense of value is rooted in the truth that we are fully and deeply loved by God. We are fully and deeply loved by God. He has already approved us in Jesus. And so we can live from that approval rather than needing to live for that approval from others. This means that we can face conflict healthily. We understand that disagreement does not equal dislike. But even more than that, you can dislike me and it doesn't threaten me. I'm okay. Because I don't have to be liked by you to be secure in my identity because I'm loved unconditionally by God. So we can face conflict healthily. We can maintain appropriate boundaries. We're not willing to allow people to do things that are unhealthy or harmful. Because we're not desperate for their approval. We're not so afraid of letting other people down, meaning we're doing something that will make them mad or disapprove of us because we're not desperate for their approval. It takes away that manipulation lever from others when we're not, um, we're not addicted to their approval. Uh, it also allows us to have relationships that are non-transactional, meaning we're not looking at every relationship like I'm giving you something to get something from you. Not every relationship is a transaction. We can take off those unspoken expectations and assumptions. So it's, I can just, I can love you freely. I can serve generously. And without needing, to, needing for you to pay me back in affirmation coins, I can, just, I, I can just love and serve. And with control, instead of needing to be in control, we can entrust ourselves to the care of our all-powerful and loving Heavenly Father. He protects us. 
And so we uh, can serve others rather than trying to get them to serve us. We can protect others rather than trying to use them to protect us and keep us safe and secure. We can work for the good of others. We can work for the good of others rather than needing to be the puppet master who's pulling the strings to make sure that our good is covered. And we can tell the whole truth with no agenda. We tell the whole truth without shading it to weaken someone else's position or strengthen our own. And we do it with no agenda. We don't use information as a weapon or a tactic. We just speak the truth. And again, relationships can be non-transactional, meaning there's not the scorekeeping, the you owe me a favor, the string, we cut the strings, no strings attached, because we're secure that I'm not, I'm not trying to build a power base be, through people owing me favors. You don't have to be the godfather when you're secure in your identity. It's, it's, it's awesome. Now, and if, so if we're secure in our identity in Christ, it really helps us to relate to other people healthily and relate to people who are different from us, even to relate to people with whom we might disagree because we're not interpreting that disagreement as something threatening. We can uh, have disagreements and not take things personally that aren't meant personally. We can disagree on an issue and not have it threaten our identity. And I don't have to be right. And I don't have to hear you tell me that I'm right in order to feel good about myself. The flip side of that is I can let you be wrong. And my inability to convince you of my viewpoint doesn't mean that I failed. It doesn't mean that I'm less worthy as a person. It just means you're wrong. But I can let you be wrong. I can extend that grace to you to be wrong. We've got um, a presidential election coming up in a year and a half. And we're going to have a lot of political conversations uh, with people in the next 18 months. What would those conversations be like if we were secure going into them? What if the other person were secure too? I just think lots of conversations about controversial or touchy issues we'd handle a lot better if we're operating from this place of security. We are able to have healthy relationships if we take off those preconditions, expectations, and assumptions when we're not looking to get from others what we've already been given by the Father We can have genuinely mutual relationships. We can give and receive freely and generously. So this is how we want to live. We want the right side of that chart to be our uh, descriptive of our behavior and our attitudes. So how do we we grow into that? You know, I, I think that a temptation can be, when we hear something like this, uh, to think of how this affects other people. And we use this as a grid to think about other people and go, wow, that describes that person that I know. They're really insecure. They really need to work on this. And that may be true. Maybe they really do. And sometimes it can give us grace for a person when we understand this. That person who's so needy, who's so arrogant, who's so controlling, we go, oh, they're incredibly insecure. That can help us uh, as we relate to them. But you know, I'm not presenting this so that we have a tool to evaluate others. The response to this starts with self-assessment. And I got to tell you folks that this is an area that I've, um, God's done a lot of work in me, especially in the last three years. And uh, I realized that for me, 
Man, that approval one, that's the lie that for me is this, the most tempting one to believe. It's the one that, I, I, that I've got to, to continually stay vigilant against. And all that I listed there, those symptoms, man, avoiding conflict, that's been so true of me. A lot of that other stuff has really been true. I mean, I've, I see it in myself, and I think it's good for each of us to think, what is the lie that's tempting for me? Maybe you've come a long ways, hallelujah, but what one's most tempting to you? What one do you have to be most vigilant against? Which of those behaviors and attitudes on either side of that chart are the ones that you see in yourself? What insecurities are yet to be dealt with? I think our response starts with self-assessment. I think many of us could testify that growing more secure in our identity in Christ is a process that doesn't end. It's ongoing. That God deals with us in layers. We go, oh, I am who you say I am. I am a child of God. And we get it. And then later, we get it at a deeper level. I am who you say I am. I am a child of God. And there's all, I think there's always a deeper level waiting. You know, we identify a, a lie that's been influencing us, and we reject and renounce it. And then we discover later other ways that the lie had affected us. We get to reject and renounce those as well. So it's, it's a process. But uh, I, I, I just want to share with you briefly some of what has helped me uh, grow in this area towards greater security in my identity in Christ. And I'd suggest these would be some actions that could help you grow more secure as, as well. Uh, the first is to utilize resources that are focused on this. The answer is not reading a book. But there are resources that are targeted to help us understand how to have a healthy soul and how to be more secure in our identity in Christ. And it's great to use those resources in dependence on the Holy Spirit. Uh, Two that I would recommend to you. One of them, you've probably heard me mention before, it's a book called Soul Care by Rob Reamer. And uh, this is, uh, Rob's material has been what God's used in my life in a profound way to get me to a place of greater health in this area. So I I strongly recommend that book. Uh, Soul Care by Rob Reamer, R-E-I-M-E-R. And he talks about a lot of what goes into having a healthy soul, not just identity, but he does touch on that. Another resource that's really helpful is a book called The Search for Significance by Robert McGee. It's a classic. It was written back in the 90s, but, and it really narrowly focuses on the issue of identity and things like approval and performance and a lot of what we talked about today. And so Soul Care, The Search for Significance are two great resources that um, I'd recommend uh, that, that could help uh, grow in this. So use those or other resources. Uh, also, confess what is true. Soak in scriptures that talk about your identity in Christ. Meditate on them until the language of those verses is natural language for you, until you're beyond familiar with it. Soak in that. It can also help to develop some short phrases that you can call the mind when you're struggling with, with these identity issues. And again, it's not that these are magic phrases. We're not talking about repeating a mantra as if it has some magical power. It's just sometimes having a succinct phrase helps to realign us to what's true, to keep us centered in truth in the moment that we need it. So maybe it's a phrase like, the issue of my worth was settled at the cross. Maybe it's, um, I am a beloved, pleasing child of my heavenly father. Maybe it's, I live from approval, not for approval. Whatever those phrases might be, but the ones that you can call to mind, maybe it's, I'm safe in the arms of my father. Whatever it is, 
uh, maybe ha- develop those so that when you're in the moment, you have them ready to mind. Confess what is true. Also, encounter God's presence. You can hear me tell you all day, this is what's true of you. But man, when you hear it direct from God, speaking to your heart, it's so powerful and so necessary. So do all that you can do to encounter God's presence. Listen to what he is speaking to you. Just preach two sermons on this. Hopefully you're all up to speed on hearing God speak. But um, listen to him. Create a time and a place for this. Set aside some time. God, I want to hear from you. I want to listen to you speak and go after it. It's, it's good to pursue God's presence. Jesus said, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. And he said that in Luke 11 in the context of the Holy Spirit coming. Asking for God's presence to be with us. And so it's good to go after this. Again, we're not seeking experiences. We're not seeking thrills and chills. We're, we're seeking the face of God. We're seeking his presence. That is a good thing to seek. Can I just say that what we're doing tonight at 6 o'clock is a practical example of what that could look like. Uh, part of why we have these worship nights is so that we have some space to seek God's face in an unhurried way, to respond to what he's doing. So that could be a very practical today step to put yourself in a place where you can encounter God's presence and hear him speak. And then uh, fourthly, engage in healthy community. Engage in healthy community with people who, are, who will remind you of what is true of you and who will help you encounter God's presence. Uh, hopefully, what we do on Sunday mornings is an example of this. I hope that this is a place where you're reminded of what's true of you and you encounter God's presence. You do that with your brothers and sisters here. So Sunday mornings are an expression of that. But, you know, Bible studies could be an expression of that. Or connection groups, which we're going to be talking more about and launching about in, in a month from now. Those could be that, an example of that kind of community. People who will remind you of what's true and who will... Um, help you encounter God's presence. You might be able to find that even with a few close friends, but it matters that we have that kind of community <clears throat> in, our, in our lives. I, I realize that I have thrown a lot of information at you this morning. This has been more content, I think, than I normally give. But, but I, I hope that God will allow to stick what really needs to stick for each of us. And again, just to remind you, you can grab those handouts and as you go today, and then you can uh, spend some more time thinking about this. And you know, that's probably going to be part of the application of this for a lot of us, is we're going to need to do something beyond what we could do just in this moment in order to respond to God and what he's saying to us. You might need to schedule some time to reflect on that chart and say, okay, God, uh, what's true of me? What, what are my behaviors and attitudes like in my relationships? And what does that say about my identity? Maybe even just pondering those identity lies and saying, okay, which of these has shown up in my life? What does that look like? Maybe you'll need to set aside some time to say, I just want to make a plan to try to grow more secure in my identity. I'm, I'm going to purposely do something to be more secure, not just look at it and go, oh, it's too bad that I haven't grasped my identity in Christ. I'm going to do something. So I want to encourage you to set aside that time. And if you feel convicted that that's a response you need to make, I want to encourage you to put something on your calendar even before you leave here today. Our good intentions have a way of staying here and not going with us. And so I want to encourage you, even get it on your calendar before you leave. This is when I'm going to give this more thought. I also think that a tangible response for a lot of us is going to be connected to the idea of engaging in healthy community. 
And, um, you know, some of you, you might just need to get with a friend or two and say, hey, you know, I've been thinking about this and here's what I'm thinking. And even just, you know, sometimes it's helpful, especially when we're dealing with stuff that's so, so much deep inside of us, verbalizing it to someone else clarifies it for us and we also get their feedback of, oh, you're not nearly as bad as you think you are. Or, I think you're onto something and I think you're right that God wants to bring some health there. And so, you know, it's got to be a trusted friend, but verbalize that to them and ask them to pray for you. Say, I'm going after this. Pray for me. Here's specifically how you can be praying for me. So get with a friend. I also would say um, we are going to be starting connection groups soon, some small groups. And if you're interested in being in or leading a group that would go through soul care or search for significance, let me know. And if there's enough interest, I'd love to uh, get a group or group started to go after that. And for some, that could be another way to live this out. There's lots of ways we could respond. And what I want to do right now is just give it a moment to let this soak in and, for, and to let the Holy Spirit bring to the surface what he wants us to do in response. So worship team, you can come back now and be ready to lead us. And everyone else, could you just bow your heads for a moment? Just going to give you a quiet, silent moment with the Lord. And Holy Spirit, we're listening to you in this time. We pray that you would surface to our awareness the thing or things that you want us to do in response to your word today. So speak to us now, we pray. Lord, as I reflect with you in this moment, I'm just so grateful that there is a before and after in our lives. That you don't leave us the way that we were, but you change us. Let's think about Jesus, what you said to Nicodemus in John 3, that we've got to be born again. There's this radical restart in our lives that's necessary and possible through you, Jesus. Thank you for that. Thank you that you bring us out of the kingdom of darkness, and even our own kingdoms, and into your kingdom, Jesus. Thank you for that change. Thank you that you change our identity, that we are no longer slaves, we're no longer sinners, we're saints, we're your children. We're really grateful for that, Lord. Lord, I pray that the truth of what we've seen in your word today would go with us from this time. I know, Lord, that you desire truth and the life and light that comes from truth, but we have an adversary who wants to deceive and distort in order to bring harm and destruction to us. So, Lord, I just stand right now in your authority, the authority I have as your child, Father, the authority I have as one who is in Christ, the authority I have because your Holy Spirit is in me, and the authority I have as a shepherd of this flock. Let's use that authority to break off the lies that have been persuasive from the enemy about our identity. And it's bind and reject and cast away the lies of performance and approval and control 
that some of us have believed or that maybe are lingering, and any way those lies still have a grip on us, I break that grip in the name of Jesus, and we affirm, Jesus, that we are indeed who you say we are. Thank you, Father, that we are your children. You love us. We are pleasing to you. And we root ourselves again in that truth today. Thank you, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen.